Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Belfast, May 1996. A teenager is bundled into a car by four masked men. He is beaten before being driven at speed to an alleyway in the nearby Republican heartland of Ballamurphy. He's removed from the car. His arms and legs are bound with tape before he is hung upside down on a wooden fence. What happens next is what's known as a punishment beating, an attack carried out by paramilitaries supposedly to keep their communities in order. The teenager survived, although he was not able to walk for many months. It would be three decades later until that teenager, Paul Reid, would receive an apology from the IRA. Vindication. What happened to him was wrong. Now in his mid-40s, Paul has an extraordinary story. He grew up in a staunch Republican family. His father, Patsy, was a renowned IRA man. His uncle, Billy Reid, is also renowned and described in the press as Republican royalty, being the first provisional IRA member to have shot a British soldier dead. Paul's story is not just about republicanism, but mostly it's about forgiveness and finding his own path to forgiving not only himself, but also those who harmed him. Paul, you're very welcome on today's podcast. Thank you, Tricia. Thank you very much for inviting me. You have a very powerful story so I'm going to get you to tell most of it. Yep. You grew up in West Belfast. I was born in Springhill, uh, 1978. Uh, Springhill, if people know it, it was, uh, it was probably, it was, it was an interface between, between Springhill and Spring Martin, just out the Springfield Road. So, I mean, growing up, what a, and what, what was a, it was a bit of a, bit of a mad upbringing in a sense of, uh, it was just, it was violence, you know. You, 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 you'd have been riding with the Protestants at the top of the street, you know, or, or, or when the foot patrols came in, you know, you'd have, you'd have had your fun with them, you know, throwing stones at the, the Brits and the police. And then when there was no foot patrols or there was no riding at the top of the street, there was actually like two gangs in Springhill. There was one called the YSD, the Young Springhill Defenders. And then you had the Young Springhill Terrorists, the YST. And I'm sure friends listening to this will remember it. And we would have had like a we would have had like a war with each other. You'd have had your own base, which would have been your hut, which would have been out our back. And it would have been like done like a like a military command, you know. You'd have had your you'd had your OC, the leader of the group. And you'd have been these way excursions of getting their weapons, which would have been like carry guns. 
caddies or, or you'd have captured one of them, you'd have brought them into the base and you'd have tortured them, you know, to find out where their, you know, where their weapons was or who their leader was. So, as I say, from, I mean, from a very young age, it was that, that combat thing was, you know, I mean, it was always there, you know. Uh, I mean, the IRA was our heroes growing up as kids, like, you know, when, when you'd have been heard that a British soldier was shot dead, you know, you would have gloated on it. You know, if you'd have heard a, a loyalist or a, or a policeman was shot dead or a bomb went off, you know, that would have been your highlight. You know, you'd have, you'd have made songs up about these. You'd have, you'd have taunted the soldiers when they came into the streets. You know, you'd have slagged them about their mates getting killed or, or the police, you know. or And so, I mean, there was a lot of violence, you know. There was a, but, I mean, as a young kid, you didn't see it. You know, it was it was fun, you know. And, uh, I mean, the rats in Springhill, I mean, the rats in Springhill, people would have came from everywhere to rat, you know. I remember, I mean, there was loads of rats, but I think one of the biggest ones was after the Lackall massacre, after the, the Saturn IRA member killed in Lackall. The rat went on for like a week, you know. And uh, there was gun battles with the IRA and the British soldiers, you know, and things you would have witnessed, you know, as a kid growing up. And uh, uh, to be quite honest, I just couldn't wait till I grew up myself to become an IRA volunteer. And so you were desensitised to violence, would you say, at a very young age? Oh yeah, well I mean, you'd have had a lot of hate in you because I mean our house would have, our house would have been raided quite regularly, you know. I mean we weren't the only family in the street the house was raided, but I mean I think ours would have been probably one of the most you know, raided houses, and I think that was because of my dad's involvement in the IRA, you know. And I remember the the, the army would have come in at maybe six o'clock in the morning, and weren't leaving your house to six seven o'clock at night, and you'd just sit in front of Atlantic Fire, you know, you weren't allowed to go out. Everyone was under arrest. They wanted to move about the house, while the soldiers just racked the house around you, like you know. And uh, so, the hate what it came from that, you know, the getting ripped out of your bed by the British soldiers. And next minute, I, I actually remember one time uh, we lived in we lived in Springhill Avenue. We lived in many houses in Springhill, but one particular, I think it was seventy-nine Springhill Avenue. They actually came in with kango hammers and dug our whole kitchen floor up right down to the foundations, you know. I mean, like, I made the live in that for, for weeks, you know, until the housing executive came out and done the repairs on it. So, I say, it was it was a tough upbringing, you know. People could say, ah, oh, it's because his dad was involved in the IRA, but, I mean, that's another story, you know, uh, of how my, dad, how my dad got involved in the IRA, you know. My dad first went into prison when I was five. I remember going up to Commonwealth Prison, you know, to visit him, and... Uh, there was a there was a, a quite famous song you know, you know written about my father's bro about my father's brother Billy and uh, so I would listen to that song growing up as a kid so I always knew who, who I always knew who Billy was and I always knew that my dad was an IRA man people come into the house things you would have seen you know and uh, <clears throat> and then when when I got about eight eight or nine uh, I remember my dad actually let me fire my first weapon you know when I was eight it was a it was a wee two two. And he brought me out the back and he says, he said, shoot against that bullet, you know, and I shot it. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I just felt powerful, you know. So, <clears throat> my dad, uh, I wouldn't say he groomed me, but he would have been giving me lectures on if I was ever arrested, when I went to Castle what to do, what to, you know, when you look back now, he was basically giving you anti-interrogation lessons, you know. I mean, I had two older brothers. Uh, Billy, Billy wasn't. Billy did show an interest in republicanism, you know. But uh, Q, Q had Q had learning disabilities, and where I was, <clears throat> I, 
I've been very inquisitive and I ask questions about everything and I think my dad's seen that. And so I think my dad's hope was 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 the past the trade on to me, so to speak, you know, and uh, and the trade was to become an IRA volunteer. I never joined the IRA. <laughs> uh, what happened was, growing up in Springhill, you know, it was uh, you were IRA mad. Uh, you know, you'd have, you'd have written it on your school bags, you'd have, you'd have plastered on the walls, you know, you'd have sung the Republican songs, and and uh, they were your god basically. And then we left Springhill. I was about. 11, 12 I think, I was 11 or 12, you know, and Springhill was being redeveloped, so we moved to Turf Lodge, and uh, <coughs> my dad was, I think it was a bit of a traveller blood on him, <laughs> he just couldn't settle, he was always moving, you know, and so we actually moved to Turf Lodge, and uh, that's when I joined the Republican Flute Band for the first time, I joined the Republican Flute Band, played in, uh, the first band I joined was a band called Turf Lodge Martyrs, and which then became Searsh and the Hearn, and then it kind of way amalgamated into Ernie. Ernie was like, Ernie was the band that you wanted to be in, you know. And uh, so when they amalgamated then, as I say, I played in Ernie flute band. Uh, I was always a Republican. I would have got tortured for it in secondary school, you know, because I, other people there you would have mixed with from like Divis and, you know, people that, that didn't really have that Republican, that, that Republican belief in them, you know. I'd have been singled out, you know, called the Provy Lick, called this and that and the other. Uh, I didn't care, I was proud of it, you know, I was proud of it, I, I held my hell high, and I say, I played in the flute band, made up, it was about 15, 16, I used to sell, I used to sell the Republican News as well, uh, I would have went out with my dad teams, and he was doing the Green Cross, uh, you know, my mum and dad, a little after when he left the IRA, you know, he uh, became heavily involved in Sinn Féin, him and my mum, my mum would have she wanted done the election work around the, you know, she, she, she'd have been one, you know, when you came in to do your, to do your vote, she'd have been there, she'd have been the Sinn Féin representative. When my dad was outside giving you the leaflet to vote Sinn Féin, so, I mean, I was always surrounded in republicanism, and, uh, but then, so then we moved to my yard, I was about, I don't think we lived in Turf Lodge that long, I was about nine, ten months we were in Turf Lodge, maybe a year, and then we moved to my yard, and that's when I think that, uh, you know, things started to change because, like, when I moved into my yard, they didn't throw stones at the soldiers, and I couldn't believe this. You know what I mean? That they didn't throw stones at the soldiers when they come in. You know, the the friends I run about with, none of them would have had that. None of them were Republican. Do you know what I mean? They were more into soccer and things like that. There, you know, where I was from a young age, I didn't care about soccer. I was more cared about throwing stones at the soldiers or fighting with the Protestants. Or so. Then, and then, and when I had about fifteen, sixteen. You know, yeah, I started to see like, I started to see like an ugly side to Larry. You know, and it was people that you knew getting shot. You know, punishment beatings, punishment shootings. And I remember going in and saying to my dad, you know, like, what's this all about? And my dad, being my dad, used to go like, they're not IRA men, son. They're just wannabes. So I went down into the street then and stood up these people. You, you're just a wannabe, you know. And so, I kind of way, I kind of way started to go off the IRA because I was seeing something that I didn't like, because, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, in Springhill, you know, my dad and his friends, which, they all would have been IRA volunteers, they would have played with us on the street, you know, they would have kicked the ball about with you, you know, you looked up to them, they didn't, they didn't look down at you, they didn't torture you, so, the, the IRA then, so when we moved to my yard, you had a, you had a wee corner where they stood at, and they started coming around, anti-social, all this anti-social behaviour stuff started coming out, you know, and they were putting you away from the corners and basically bullying you. 
And what was the anti-social behaviour that they said? It was maybe like, we were like standing at the corner having a carriage, probably listening to loud music. You know what I mean? I mean, there was no. I mean, we, we weren't breaking into houses. We weren't. We, we weren't driving about in stolen cars. And we weren't stand. I mean, we weren't drug dealers. You know, and uh, so I suppose that's when I suppose that's when I started to change my mindset on the IRA. And uh, when I was when I was seventeen, I remember approaching a guy. You know that I, that I knew, uh, I for the join the Republican Socialist Movement, and I mean I was even before my beating, you know, and uh, so I mean I already already had it in my head that it was that it was going down that road, and my dad when he found out that I mean so, and I went down and approached the guy about about him putting my name down to join, and I come home and I told my dad, he was the first person that I told because I, I always told my dad everything. Because he was the only man that I could really trust, and he just says to me, "Look," he said, "You watch yourself." He says, "Because them boys are are very quick at shooting themselves." And he was talking about the previous feuds within the within the Republican Socialist Movement. So, <coughs> and then, uh, well, before that, I'll have to take you back of when the change really happened. I was fifteen, and I was in uh, I was in the White Dark one night. And there was these cars that were called ringers, right? People were buying them and you, you and like shaking them on with a key or something. I hadn't a clue, I'd never drove a car before in my life. I was I was drunk. And they got into the car with two wee girls. And it took me about an hour to drive from the white dock up up into my yard because I couldn't drive and it was up and down cribbies and you know. And so I, I drove into my yard and a friend got into the car with me. And uh, I drove into the farm where I tried to do a handbrake turn and I hit the wall because I couldn't I couldn't drive, you know. So I got out of the car, you know, and a local Republican came and uh, he started telling me, Reid, I'm telling your dad that you done that. I'm bringing that up to your dad's house. And he got into the car and he drove it up to my dad's house. But the mate, before he came, he got out and he put his hood up and run. So I was going to, and next minute I'm standing at the corner and I heard my dad shouting, Paul, and yeah, I was it. I walked out and my dad had me one day and knocked me clean out in the middle of the street. And I get up. And he went, you bring that in to me. And I said to him, ah, look, it's not a stolen car. It was a ringer. It was a ringer. It was sitting there. It was sitting there. So my dad gave me another tanking, right? Gave me another couple of digs in the head. And this Republican started shouting that I was getting my knees done. He started shouting. I started arguing with him. And then he was arguing with me back. And uh, my dad says to him, what do you mean he's getting his knees done? It's his first time getting in trouble. Like, I'm only after hitting him or what? What do you want? And he started cancing and cancing. And my dad says, oh, I offered him a fair dig. My dad says, do you want to fight him? And he kind of laughed because I was only 15. But so the two of us had a fight and I got the better of him. And now my dad pulled me up and said, that's enough. And once he walked away, my dad turned and says, me, you watch yourself. So he says, they'll come back for you. So about two days later, I, I, came, out of, I came out of school. And when I went into your house, my man says to me, people up the stairs want you. And I went up and there was two local IRA volunteers there that didn't have any mask on. I knew them. You know, and my dad was standing beside them, and they started to ask me, started to slap me about a bit, you know, not nothing much, just what are you doing in that car? Basically, gave me the gave me the big finger, and they says to me, what about the ban? You know, you, you, why did you leave the ban for? You're falling into the, the wrong crowd here, kid. You know, you're not like that. You're better than that. And I went, you know, and then they says to me, right, who was in the car with you? I said, I'm not telling you. They says, who was in the car with you? I says, I'm not telling you. He says, look, we're going to take you out that background, break your two legs. I says, you may do it then. I'm not telling you who's in the car. I'm not a third. 
And I remember the words he says, I'll never forget it. He turned around and he says to my dad, he says, Patsy, you wrote him well. He says, he'd make a cracking volunteer as he walked out of the house. As we were walking down, and that night my mum done a bit of shouting to you after the, the guy that I was fighting, or sorry, fighting with. And my dad says, told the two IRA men, he says, now I went and pulled my wife, because she called his pro VPs. And they went in, and they couldn't keep a straight face when they were, they were pulling my ma, you know. But this was something that my dad wanted to do, because my dad wouldn't have had none of it, you know. So, <clears throat> after that then, it was just, I mean, it was a normal teenager, it was in the 90s, you know, rave music was in. Uh, I started then going out to, going out to raves, you know. And but <coughs> standing at the corner listening to rave music, I remember taking a half an acid tab one time and took a couple of half E's, you know, didn't didn't really like them, didn't sit with me. And then uh suppose it was just doing every but people were always wary of me because of my republicanism. And that's when I left the band because no one would have nobody wanted to play with you or nobody wanted to run about with you because you were a provy lick because the provos were doing all these shootings, the provos then when I grew up in Spring Hill. They were the good guys, then they started to become the bad guys, you know, in the area that, in the area of uh, my yard. So <laughs> I suppose it just kind of way, fell away from, as I say, from the IRA, you know. I wouldn't say I hated them, but I, I mean, I had a real, real dislike for what they were doing. And uh, I remember coming up one time, as I say, I don't want to mention anybody's names. Uh, I remember coming up one time and finding a neighbour, Lennon Westock, shot. And I, I went over telling him he was Lennon shot. And, he said to me, really kid, really kid, will you go and tell, go and tell the wife? I went, I will indeed. And I ran up and told his mum and dad. And then I ran up and told his wife. And I was like, like he, was a, he was a wee gentleman, do you know what I mean? He, I was like, why did he get shot? What did the rats shoot him for? You know, when you were hearing all the people getting shot. And, yeah. So, as I say, that's when, the, that's when I started to go off the IRA. You know, that's when I just started. To, I left the barn. Uh, I went the, when I turned 17, I went and approached the members, as I say, of the RSP, and uh, I wanted to get involved in the Republican Socialist Movement, you know. And, and so you did? Um, <coughs> well, I could bet, uh, that's when the baiting took place. I had my name down, and then uh, I'll have to tell the truth here, I'm not going to sit in a podcast and lie, but one night I got drunk. I was in my sister's house, and out of pure frustration and the hate that well not the hate but the real dislike that I had the rat doing all these shootings. And I asked I asked the brother in law, the ex brother in law, did he have a ton of paint? And he gave me it and a brush. And I went until the farmway. And I started slagging off the local provost, uh, calling them assholes and bum bum bum. Just graffiti. Just graffiti. Just I was drunk, I was drunk and just out of pure frustration, like why are these people doing this, you know what I mean? And uh, so I think that was the thing that probably they used most to seal my, seal my fate. A bit of graffiti, a bit of paint on the ground, you know what I mean? And it wasn't long after that, as I say, that uh, I was on my way to work that morning when the, when the baiting took place, you know. I was only 17. That morning, uh, that morning I was on my way to work. A friend of mine, uh, me and him used to work with each other, and uh, <coughs> he came down and we were on our way to work. We used to walk through as this place called the farm. It's like it's like an alleyway. That was the place that done the writing to here, around it. It's like an alleyway from Moyard into New Barnsley. And two of us are walking through and uh having a smoke. And as we walked up, when I looked down there was a there was an own IRA man there. And uh the mate goes to me, he says, Where's a rat? What's happening here? I says he said, I ain't well, something's gonna happen to me. You're paranoid, ways up, what's gonna happen to us? What do we do? So as it as I walk by, the f- it goes like a nail, so I could only see him, 
There was a wee tent to go up the way. There was another local area man standing there. As I walked by him, he says, me here, pull kids, stick out in your mouth. And I pushed him out of the road. And, uh, and then I started to swing and digs. And next minute, they started getting punched from everywhere. A couple, I don't know how many more came. I just heard footsteps because my head was on the ground. and just punching the head of me. And uh, I think one of them busted my nose. My nose was busted. And I just grabbed the sack. I mean, give me it. And I, I just put it in my mouth. And then they taped my mouth up. That brown tape you see on boxes. They taped my mouth up. And then the guy told me to put my hands behind my back. And I put my hands behind my back. And he says to me, uh, well, close your fingers if you're, if you're praying. And I closed my fingers and they taped my, they taped my hands up. And then they woke me up. And there was a car sitting there. And they bundled me into the back of the car. As I was getting in, I looked at the driver. I could see him through, through the mirror. And when he seen my eyes wasn't covered, he freaked out. Cover his eyes, cover his eyes. And next minute the guy got the tape out and he started taping my eyes. So I was freaking out. I thought I was going to die at that point. I couldn't breathe, right? My nose was busted. I was trying to breathe. And I could taste the blood going down the back of my throat. And I was freaked out. I mean, I thought, me, this is it. This, and I was thinking, what, what's happening to me here? You know, what's going to... What have, what have these done this for, you know? And then the guy in the back, he sat in the back of my legs. And next minute, he rubbed my head. And he says, don't worry, Paul, kid. We only want to have a word be. You're all right. Stop panicking. Everything's all right. So kind of way, calmed down then, and I was thinking, probably want to have a word with me, we're doing that, John, in the, in the farm that they're writing. And uh, so, it brings me, drives me in a car, don't know where I'm going, I'm blindfolded, bringing me down, everything was silence, there was no questions. Get me out of the car, stand me up, they broke the tape in my hand, and then they taped me from my shoulders right down to my wrist. And they just basically, I was only about seven and a half stone, I was really small. It was about seven and a half, eight stone, was bait. And they just turned me around, they were turning me around, I was going around in circles, they were just taping me from out of the air like a, like a parcel. So then I remember walking up like a bit of a hill. As I said, it was all silence. And then they lied me down, and I'm still thinking. At that point, I thought maybe they were going to paint me. The way you hear people getting painted. I thought, I, I didn't imagine that I was getting, going to get the paint that I got. Like, I mean, I didn't even think yet. So next month they lied me on the ground. And I felt them messing about with my ankles. And I heard one of them saying, right, go use and grab any more things. We do this. So as they're messing up, I heard the footsteps running. And then as they were coming back, one of them dropped the iron bar. And I heard the iron bars running. And I went, oh, shit, this is it. I like, no, it's coming. And next mile, bump like that. They lifted me up, upside down. Now my shoulder was still on the ground. My shoulder in the back of my head. I remember them telling me to the fence. And just this excruciating pain around my ankles. I remember going, no way, no way, this can't be happening. I heard the footsteps coming down the side of me. I went, one, two, three, go, bang. Just felt that the pain was, <laughs> I mean, you get a kick in the shin and you know how hard it is. You imagine getting an iron bar slapped off your, off your, I met, my legs were like toothpicks at the time. So, it started beating me and beating me and I was trying to turn on the fence. I was like trying to turn my, you know, my legs around for the hit my calves. That's what I was thinking in my head. And, uh, so the tape then broke off me. Because it was rolling about the ground, the tape broke off my eye. Came around and I looked up. And one of them put his hands up like that. And he went, cover his face. And one of them from behind then put their foot up against my eyes as they continued to beat me. And then I heard these kids screaming. Just screaming. And I heard, shit, there's kids with me go. And then they run. And that was me left. And I remember pulling, getting my arms up. Because I was in my work clothes, I was on my way to work. I was wearing this fleece, so I was able to get my arms up, 
pull the tape out of my mouth as the tape came out. The sack like stuck on my throat and it choked. Pulled the tape out, pulled it off my eyes and I just started screaming help. I looked down the alleyway and I actually thought it was in a different area. I thought it was in Turf Lodge. And I just started screaming help, help, somebody help me, somebody help me. And this, I, this wee woman came running out and she says, son, I don't be worrying, the ambulance is on its way. And I'm like, get me down, get me down, please, because the pain was excruciating. And uh, so next one, I seen these two girls. They were walking down to push some prams and started shooting. And I heard one of the girls going, that's a wee fella up there. So the two of them came running down the alleyway. And one of them straight and got my head. And going, oh, me, please get me down, get me down, get me down. And the girl went, I've nothing to get, she's telling me on to do the thing. She says, I've nothing to cut this with. And I says, hey, do you have a letter? Burn it. I don't know where I got that from. So the girl pulled the lighter out and she started to burn it. And guess what happens next? <laughs> it snapped. God loved it to him. Like it wasn't our fault. It just snapped and my legs smashed off the ground again. And the, they were just jumping. I couldn't stop them. I was like, I was like jumping over the alleyway, you know. And so the next went the girl went down and she held my two legs. And I, I remember my whole body just rattling when she held them. My body just rattled. And then I heard my uncle. He came running up. That's our Marie's wee lad, he says. All these people were coming around me. You already, you already, and all I was crying out for was a drink of water. Please give me a drink of water, somebody give me a drink of water. And uh, so they, they wouldn't give me a drink of water. And then my uncle, he let up a fag, me gives a smoke, and he let up a fag, and he's standing over me smoking a fag. Next minute, my mum came, and there was people trying to stop her for to come in. And next minute, my mum came, and once she seen me, she just collapsed, boom. So I was more concerned about her. And then my dad raised on the scene. And my dad hated the police. <laughs> they hated even coming near the door, he just hated the police. So there was two policemen standing there, it was all you see at the time. And my dad goes, Paul, son, it was three hooded men that beat you. I says, I know that. So he's more or less telling me, keep your mouth shut. Right? But I already knew that. <laughs> I wasn't that stupid. And uh, the cops are saying, I mean, look, three hooded men, three hooded men. So my dad started, he was drunk. He was, it was one of the, my dad was on the drink at the time. And he, he busy started fighting the police. And I remember saying to him, what are you fighting Raymond's for? It was your mates that done it. <laughs> you know the metallic? I don't know why I said it, but I remember the, the, the ambulance men cutting up my trousers. And, uh, you know, and I wasn't wearing any underwear because any time I went to work, I never wore underwear, right? And the, the guy says to me, are you all right underneath that? I says, no, I've no, I've, I've no boxer shorts on. Everybody busted out in the alleyway. So... So when they cut my, the, the blood was everywhere. They put them big padded things on, got me on the stretcher. And I remember getting brought down the alleyway. And I seen one of them standing there, one of the boys involved in it. He was standing at the end of the alleyway. And uh, I remember shouting uh, up, uh, or sorry, up the IRA, and I, or, I shouted the real IRA. And it was ironic because that was 1986. I think it was a year or two later, the real IRA were... Reformed, <laughs> you know. I don't know. It bit, I don't know. It was a bit of foresight that I seen, you know. But I was talking about, you know, not usings, you know, the real IRA men, the IRA men that I would have grew up respecting and admiring. So that was it. Then that was a, uh, that was a baiting over. Uh, pain was gone. Brought the RVHs. Uh, I was in the RVHs for three and a half weeks. Three and a half weeks. And what damage was done to your legs? Well, the shin bone was split, and then it cracked. Right. So. The, the first brought me down, and they're going to put, they're going to put two plates in it, and then thank God for the surgeon. He says, "Hold on, he's young, you know what I mean. He's only seventeen. He's young. These bones." So they put like these clamps on, and they had them on for a couple of days, and then 
after it was I mean, even the surgeon was baffled. He said he never seen anyone heal so quick in all his life. After about a week, my bone started to knit. Right, so they didn't have to put metal in, thank God. But the biggest one was the skin graft. There was that many holes? They had to cut it into like a big massive hole, and then they had the skin graft it. And uh, so I got out. I got out on the fourth of June, the day before my eighteenth birthday. So my eighteenth birthday was the fifth of June, and I got out on the fourth. And but one of the things happened in hospital was. I remember my dad didn't come down for about two. I hadn't seen my dad in about two or three days. I think it was. And I remember saying to my mum, "What's wrong with my dad?" I said, "Is he embarrassed?" And my mum went, "What?" I says, "Is he ashamed of me?" And she says, "No, he's not. Don't be thinking that. He's just he's coming off a drink." And then my dad came down, and I remember the words he said. And he says, "I'll never be ashamed of you. You know." He says, "You didn't deserve it." So <clears throat> my mum was running to county house. She was going up. Ask him why it was done. When I see someone up, my name wasn't in the wee black book, as I call it. So it wasn't sanctioned. And <clears throat> she says, you know, why was it over? They says that it threw a petal bomb at an IRA man's house. So my mouth goes down, rings the fire brigade. Has there only been any petal bomb incidents in Ballamer in the past? Hadn't been. So she goes back to County House. And they says that it bit an IRA man's ear off. Right? Didn't bite no IRA man's ear off. And, and then my dad says, my mouth, look, listen, stop getting near them. You're going to end up telling me that he was robbing grannies or something. They're just lying. Don't go near them. So my man stopped. <coughs> and uh, we didn't hear anything else. You know, my brother went mental. He was he kicked a few doors in, you know, looking to kill people that was involved in it. And with his bare hands, you know. And and then and then the IRA came and uh, basically told us that, that if we didn't shut up and stop doing it, that, that we'd be put out of our houses. <laughs> So then when I was in hospital, uh, as I say, you know, people were coming down, the amount of, they used to call, the nurses called me Mr. Famous in hospital, because of the amount of get well cards and balloons, I had visitors from 8 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, you know, so, <coughs> uh, no, the family, the family had great support, so then when I got out of hospital, uh, as I say, I was paranoid, every car, you know, even, you know, my dad had to stay in the city with me for the first I was in the plaster parish for about 16 weeks. So my dad, he stayed in the, he had to stay beside me with a hammer. And I had to land in the city. My dad slapped in the chair with a hammer, more or less protecting him and telling me. So when I got the plaster parish off, uh, sorry, I was coming through one day, that the farm, the place where they got me with the brother-in-law, and the same boys involved in the baiting flew up behind me. They all jumped out and slammed the car doors. So I run with the crutches. But as I run, I fell. And I fell, I couldn't stop my hands, and I scraped my whole, you know, I scraped my face in it. I'm drowning my dad, and my dad went mad. So we went back up to County House, and I uh, was speaking to a representative of the Republican movement. And this is the first time that I had heard that it was wrong. And he say, this is the words he says to me, he says, I cannot put my hand on my heart and say that you deserve this. He says, to me, it was a personal vendetta. I says, can you just not put that in the paper? He says, no, we can't, because we're on ceasefire. That time the IRA was on ceasefire in 1986. He says, we can't. And he says, I know, but I have to live stigma. I have to live that I'm some type of hooter scumbag, you know what I mean, for this happening to me. He says, look, kid, all I'm going to tell you is, he says, you're going to get a nice claim. He says, enjoy it. And, I was, and that's what I was left with, you know. What was your opinion of these so-called punishment beatings before it happened to you? Did, were you of the opinion that... 
Oh, Some people deserve them. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, as my dad always told me, and I'll never forget, he says, Paul, son, we live in a jungle. We've got to obey by the jungle rules, you know? Now, there was people there that you went yourself, ah, oh, he deserved it because of what he was doing, you know? And then other ones, you knew, they did, but what did they get that for, you know? Because you knew that they didn't deserve it. And then there was ones there that should have got it and didn't get it. <laughs> Do you understand? People get in the way with things because of their family connection. I know drug dealers that were big players and never got touched, never got a hair laid on their heads. So if they were doing it, if they were doing it justly, do you understand? But when they were using it for their own disorder, their own personal vendettas, or their, you know what I mean? That's that's where that's where the corruption lied. You know, I mean. It, uh, if it's one law for one, it's we. I mean, it's we one law for all, and that's what I seen at that. I don't know. I, I look at a complete. It was barbaric, you know. How any human being could do that on another human being is beyond me. Do you know what I mean? But uh, <coughs> it's. I mean, to do that to someone, especially a young child at seventeen years of age, you know. I mean, in this country that I'm aware, you know, you don't become an adult till you're eighteen, you know. So I mean, I was still a child, you know, and uh, I mean, with that done, then. For my life, you know, in the latter years to come, you know, I mean, I didn't know about PTSD. I remember being diagnosed with it by a psychiatric nurse. Uh, I was only at a hospital a couple of weeks. You know, I was getting bad nightmares, and they're trying to put me on the, as these different medications. But something inside me, Patricia, always told me stay away from the tablets, and I'm glad I listened to it because the tablets that the doctor tried to prescribe me at the start was a tablet called Marl. There was another one called Gaminol. And when I changed my doctor years later, and he had my medical records, this, the doctor told me that if I had taken them tablets, I would have ended up in a mental institution. Marl was for schizophrenics. I wasn't a schizophrenic. I was just a young boy that went through a traumatic experience. Do you know what I mean? And I'm just so glad that I never took the tablets, you know? And uh, so, as I say, after the beating, the, the embarrassment was just, it was, it was horrendous. That's what I was going to ask you, this the stigma associated. That was the worst. That was the worst, you know. I became a taxi driver not long after. And, you know, you'd have, or even out in the street, you'd have been talking to people. And, oh, you got a punishment beating, didn't you? Oh, you must have deserved that. You must have done something. You must have been a bad boy. You know what I mean? And that was the, that was probably the hardest thing, you know what I mean? That, that, that the organisation that you grew up adoring, loving, and then they turn on you like that, you know. Over, if it was a drug dealer, if it was a joyrider, you know, I would have looked over it. I wouldn't be sitting having this podcast with you now, you know. And but as I say, the main thing here is that uh, I mean, I'll just give you an example of of my mind at that time as a young boy. I remember at fourteen years of age, getting called in by the careers officer in school, and they ask you, you know, what what do you want to be when you grow up? And then they give you, well, you'll need this qualification. And I remember getting into the careers officer. And, he says to me, he has a waste of time for me, mate. He went, what do you mean? He says, look, when I leave school, I'm joining the IRA. He started laughing. <laughs> I looked at him. He says, what are you laughing at? I'm serious. And he went, I mean, I have no time for qualifications, mate. Once I leave school, I'm joining the IRA. He went, me kid, you're serious, aren't you? I went, oh, he went, go on about your business. Then. You know, and so that's, that, that's where my mind was. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes, sometimes you know, you look back and hang. And fate, fate is a fate is a great thing. You know what I mean? I don't know what that beating prevented in the whole plan of God in my life. You understand? I don't know what's went on, 
That's why I don't have any hate towards the men that done it. I don't have no animosity at all. I wouldn't wish I wouldn't wish anything unwell on them. And 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 I just hope that they come to the place where I've came to, a place of forgiveness, a place of acceptance of who you are, of what. Because I mean, I'm no angel. I'm no saint. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not sitting here going that, you know. But but what I'm saying is, you know, I believe that 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 the forgiveness for me, that's when the healing started, because for years throughout my twenties and thirties. Uh, this didn't even come into my head. Do you understand? I wasn't even. I know subconsciously I was, you know. And the boy in particular, you know, the main one that that, that I got debating over, you know, he was on my head nearly every morning I woke up, and I had it in my head once I heard that he wasn't in the IRA. I was going to give him the debating of his life, and I, I I actually told people it. You know what I mean? I didn't hold it secret. I went once I find out he's out of the rats, it. I'm going to give him it, you know, and and then. When my heart changed, you know, when God changed my heart, it took it took that completely, completely away from it. I was horrible, you know. It was eating me up, right? I started uh, when I was nineteen twenty. I started bodybuilding, right, and I started using steroids, right, for the build for the build my body. And when I look back now, it was all protection. I started doing martial arts, yeah. And it was all immune man. When I look back now, it was all like, oh, you done it again. You done it then, but you'll not do it again. You know, and that was my mindset, you know, that they got away with it once, but they'll never do it again. So so the impact that that had on me in, you know, was like, you know, you, were, you started to abuse steroids, you weren't a nice person, you know what I mean? Like, as I say, you know, I mean, I, I've had quite a few field, you know, field relationships, you know what I mean? When I look back now, do I regret them? Absolutely, you know? I wasn't a nice person to be around, you know? I would have lost the head very quickly, you know, and... Uh, Although it isn't all one said, you know, yourself in relationship, you know, I mean, you can't just blame one person and everything, but I have to hold my hand up. I wasn't a nice person. It was eating me up inside, but I didn't know what it was. I had a lot of anger, right? I was uncompassionate. I was I was ruthless, you know. Uh, as I say, I went on and got involved in the Republican Socialist Movement myself, although I can't talk about anything, you know. But, uh, I mean, things in there were... I would have seen myself then as as the aggressor and no better than them people that done that to me. You understand? And then I mean the 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 biggest you know like the biggest regret for me, you know, was like I mean, I have I have five children, you know, and you know, the 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 three different women and no man sets out to have five children to three different women, you know. Children in broken homes, and then all that, all that, what that entails. Do you know what I mean? And it wasn't until, as I say, my late thirties, early forties, more or less, more, more so over the past four. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Years that one of really studied PTSD and what PTSD does to you. I mean, like, I took nearly every box, you know? And it's only, I'm not trying to justify my actions, but now I can understand why I behaved the way I behaved. Then I can also forgive myself, which is more important, you know, because there's people out there, Paula, or sorry, Patricia, as you well know, you know, you know and I've seen it with my own father until he found his peace with God. And they're riddled with guilt. They're riddled with bitterness. And when you get through all them layers, there's a human being there. No matter what we are, we were a priceless baby at one time, brought into this earth, loved, cherished and adored, pure and clean. And it's our surroundings, it's our upbringing, right? It's, it's everything that comes with that that makes us the human beings that we are, you know? Trauma is a terrible, terrible thing to experience. It can change people's personalities. My beating wasn't hidden, it was public. I had to live with that scar of that public humiliation for a long time. And when I had my late 30s, as totally, or I started coming back to me. And then when I, you know when you see your own kids at 17, you're going, my God, if that was that, you know what I mean? And then you start to really understand the barbaricness in it, right? I mean, for example, my mum's cousins were two of the, the, two of the hooded men. There was snowball by the British Army. One of them was a force confession, it was sad out of him. And he was, Sentenced on death row, then he was reprieved. And I heard their stories of like the British Army getting them as water boating. Now, if you're an IRA volunteer and if the enemy captures you, you gotta suck it up. My dad got more patents than enough in Castle Ray. Didn't open his mouth about it. Didn't didn't cry about it. Do you know what I mean? It was part of the part of the game, you know? So I thought to myself, imagine if the British Army had him then and picked IRA men up out of their houses and brought them up alleyways and hung them upside down the fences and smashed their legs in. <laughs> you imagine that? It would have been world news. World news, do you know what I mean? It would have, and the, the, yet they've done that in us and we're told to shut up and forget about it. You know? I mean, like, this is a part of Irish history that needs to be spoken about. You know what I mean? Like, although, I'm, although I've renounced all my politics, but I always remember... I was, I was always a great reader of Che Guevara, you know. And I remember Che says that when the revolution starts to devour its children, it's not the revolution anymore. And that's what these people have done. 
You know, they, they, they were devouring their own children. You know what I mean? They were leaving young men traumatised. And it's hard to build their life off my again. I just thank God that, I mean, it's through his grace and mercy that I'm sitting here now because I contemplate it suicide. I have an uncle, God rest him. He was 30 years of age. He was shot by the IRA, lost his leg, and he hung himself, you know. And I've, I, you know, it was me and the other uncle that found him. And that always stuck in my head, you know. Could that, what broke him, could that happen to me? Could that break me? Do you know what I mean? Could I do something like that? And uh, I remember one time, you know, 2007 it was, when I was ready to do it. And I had the brother come in. I never hang up, I had the rope and all up. I was getting out of it, you know. And when you're in that place, Patricia, and that's how I understand people when they talk about suicide. I understand suicide. I was there, right? You can't see no light. These thoughts come into your head. The world would be better if you weren't in it. Nobody likes you. You've messed everything up. You know, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible place to be. You see no light. And the only way out is that. You know what I mean? But I, I, I thank God that day my brother came in. And then it was only a couple of years after that that I, had the, I, that I had the conversion in my bedroom. You know, when God came into my life and spurred me from it. You know, and I've never had another suicidal thought from it. You know what I mean? So... <clears throat> It's not only the bait, it's, it's, it's actually the consequences of the baitings. Do you know what I mean? It's that ripple effect that it has in society. And as I say, we need to get to the place where, 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 where we're forgiving each other and we're also forgiving ourselves. Because I'm sure there's men out there that done this. They carried out these baitings. I'm sure they find it hard. You know Do what I mean? Do you believe that? Absolutely. Absolutely. They might fight it off at ways, but listen, <laughs> when you're in your bedroom, at night time, when you're on your own, that's when everything comes back. I seen it with my own. I seen it with my own dad. You know what I mean. And my dad never done the young people. You know what I mean. He, he done, as I say, he was an IRA man. He was an operator. He done what he done, and he struggled with it. And my dad never found his peace until he found his peace with Christ. You know. So tell me about you finding. God, or I think you described it before we were, were recording that it wasn't that you found God, it was God found God you. Found, yeah. Well, Teresa, when I was involved in the Republican Socialist Movement, I was nominated to participate in this uh, sustainable peace project. And basically what it was, it was ex-loyalist, ex-Republicans, ex-British soldier, uh, RUC, a, a whole diverse group of people, right? And they took us away. It actually started in Glencree, right? Glencree, Glencree is a big peace and reconciliation centre there in the Wicklow Hills. And we went down and we met these different groups. So part of the part, of the, the end of the trip was a sixteen-day trip out to South Africa. And as I say, at that point, I was a Marxist-Leninist. I was studying dialectic materialism. Right? I could have proved it that God didn't exist. It was a fairy tale, as Marx says himself. It was a utopia of the masses to keep the people down. I believe this, 100%. I mean, the Communist Manifesto would have been my Bible, you know. And uh, I remember going out to South Africa, and part of the part of the South Africa, the whole journey, you had to spend five days in the bush, in the South African bush. And that was the point in my life where I realised how insignificant I was. You know, I was a big. You think you're a big, you're a big face in a small pond. <laughs> when you go out there, you realise that it was, it was an it was like an emotional roller coaster. That's the only way I can describe it. I didn't eat for five days. Right, I didn't eat all the drunk, all the dumbest drink water. 
my emotions was up and down the place. But every night at the same time, this peace just came over me. And I always had a great night's sleep. But during the day, it was like, a, only way I can describe it, it was like an overhead projector. Images coming into your head. What way I was as a, as a person. What way I was as a son to my mother and father, as a brother. You know, totally abused steroids. So my temper was, I could have went from not to 10 in a second, you know. And my parents sometimes used to dread me coming, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'd been shouting and bawling. I was very highly strung and, you know. And uh, I remember going out to South Africa and them five days in the bush, something happened to me. That's when I realised that there was something else there. I didn't know what it was. Jesus still didn't, still had, hadn't seen the whole Jesus thing then, but I knew there was something else. This just isn't it, right? So when I came out of the bush, I remember talking to a guy called Wilhelm Vervoet. He was, he, he was like the leader of the group. He was part of the ANC in South Africa. And he says, I remember saying to him, I understand Christians when they say they've seen the light. I think I've seen the light. And I remember seeing this shock on his face and he went, whoa, because he knew how much of an atheist there was, how much of a... So when I got back home, uh, I started studying a lot on Celtic... The first book I read was a book called Anamkara by a guy called John O'Donoghue. He was a, he was an ex-Catholic priest, right? And I started reading all of this stuff, you know, Celtic spirituality, then they get into the angels and different things like that, right? And that was in 2005, I was in South Africa. So once I came back for about two years, and I, I, I was doing the angel card readings in myself, I was doing all this stuff. I didn't realise what I was playing with. I didn't realise it, 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 it was the demonic I was playing with. And that's what brought me to that suicide attempt in 2007. Brought me to a real dark, dark place. I remember after that happened, my brother took me away, we went to Omeath, we came back and I dumped all the stuff, right? So for three years, I just continued on, you know, struggling, struggling every day, struggling, but I knew something had changed in me. And then for about, totally, twice, for about nine months, every time I came out of the work, I just kept getting, pray to our father, pray to our father. I was going, where does this come from, right? I'm not schizophrenic, I don't hear voices, but it was that, you know, that overburned thought every night at the same time. And I kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I'm going, I don't even believe this nonsense. You know, this old Jesus thing. So, uh, I, by that time I bumped into an old friend who was involved with in the Republican Socialist Movement. And he said to me, call around your flat one night, we'll have a coffee and all. I goes around. He said to me, what are you doing with yourself? I says, nah. He, I mean, I'm studying, I was doing all that Celtic spirituality stuff and all that. And then he went to me, there's only one way, kid. I went, what's that? He went, Jesus. And I near took his head off me. What do you mean, Jesus? Don't start putting that nonsense down to me, right? And he kind of way backed off a bit, you know? And and uh, so he was the first one to put the whole seed into my head. So I remember coming around this night and, as I say, for about eight, nine months, pray to our father, pray to our father. And one night I get down on my knees through good teeth and a disbelieving heart and I prayed to our father. And just to get it out of my head. And I got up into bed, and was, I remember I was lying in bed, I was lying in my belly, and I felt this immense heat over me. It was like someone had a radiator lying over the, over the top of me. And I remember kept turning around, where's this heat coming from? My whole body was like, it was roasting, you know? Really, really massive heat going right through my whole body. And the next morning I woke up, and I'll never forget it, I had a love in my heart 
that I'd never experienced before in my life. And it was like stepping out, the only way I can explain it, it's like stepping out of black and white in the colour. It's like watching a black and white TV your whole life and then someone hands you 4K. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I colour TV. The world just looked completely different. I remember looking out my front door and the trees even looked alive. The colours were different. I, I just can't explain it, right? But I knew something had changed in my heart. So I started going down a process of just, I had so much compassion that I never had before, right? Things that I'd done, I was regretting. I was crying about it. I was, I'm sorry for it. M meeting people that I'd done bad on, hugging them, telling them that I was sorry, asking them to, you know, would they forgive me. Not one person turned me away. Not one person says no. They were shocked when they see me, you know? And that was a process. And it wasn't long after that that I actually went to the guy's door that was involved in my baiting. This is the man who ordered your... He was the man. Well, he was the man. He was the man behind it, do you know what I mean? As I say, you know, he was... He, uh, he was the one that, that, that... He was the one that I had a fight with. He was the one that had a with me. This was the reason behind your, yeah. your punishment beating was that fight that happened yeah. when you were 15. Yeah. For those who, who, who um, are following the podcast, that was the real reason yeah. that you were... And you described it as like being crucified. Well, you see, I, I, uh, it was... Well, that's what we were called. It was actually the newspaper called this the crucifixions, you know, cause, because of the way it was done, you know. And uh, so, as I say, I went to this guy's door... Uh, I told him, I, I told him that I forgive him, and he looked at me and he says, "You see?" And he went to me, "What's happened to you, Paul?" I said, "I was only back from Magicori at that time," and I says, "Listen, I've just got forgiveness of God, and I've been told to come and forgive you." And it, the words he says to me was, "Do you think God will forgive me?" I says, "Of course He would." I says, "Me, God will forgive anybody." You know, I mean, all you got to do is look at the story of Moses and Paul. You know, these people killed people. God forgive them. David. You know, had people murdered and God said he was a man after his own heart. So, I mean, God forgives everything, you know. And so I had that with him, but I'll never forget it, Patricia. When I, when I walked out his door and there was a girl picking me up in the car, she, she actually picked me up from the airport and I went to his house straight away because I knew I had to left it for a day or two. I wouldn't have done it. I knew I, I had to do this. I went and done it. I remember coming out and I felt the weight of the world off my shoulders. I never felt as free in all my life, you know? And the two of us get into the car and she says, my God, you're glowing, right? And uh, as me, it was amazing to do that. So, as I say, then, the devil has a funny way to put bitterness back in your head again. As I say, a couple of weeks ago, you know, there was something that came out and I suddenly didn't listen to it. Uh, a bit of bait was through at me and me like a sucker took it. You know what I mean? But as I say, it's not my problem what anybody does. When I'm standing in front of God, I be given account of my own sins. I'll not be concerned about what he does, what he does. And no one has a right to stand and judge anybody. We've all done. It says in the Bible, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. There's none of us righteous, you know what I mean? There's none of us right before God, you know? And that's why I thank God for Jesus Christ. So, but What was it like walking up to that man's door that man whose decision to take a vendetta against you changed your life, caused you pain in your heart. Were you nervous? Were you scared? To be no, I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I didn't know what his reaction was going to be, but I, but I didn't really care what his reaction was going to be. If he'd have told me to f off or go away, I don't want to speak to you, I'd have had to accept that. I was at a different place then. Do you know what I mean? 
I was, I felt just so powerful in the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? I was, I was filled up to tackle anything, and it was all prepared for me. Thank God He didn't turn me away. He didn't say F off. I remember when I was walking out, he, he put his hand out to shake my hand, and I went stand up, and he stood up, and I threw my arms around him and hugged him. You know, I spoke to him after it, and as I say, I have no animosity. I pray for them, you know, because God says to us, you know, not only love your enemies, but pray for them. I pray for these people all the time. I see the destruction that, that, that this place has caused people. You know what I mean? You, you can't judge someone until they walk in their shoes. And even when you walk in your shoes, you still can't judge them, you know? So to me, it's all about having compassion and having love. And that's, that, that's the message that I want to get. And unforgiveness will eat you up and destroy you. It'll ruin you. Do you know what I mean? You're not going to get nothing out of it. It's gonna, it's gonna bring you till, it's gonna bring you till an early grave. You know what I mean? Or make you make decisions that you normally wouldn't make in a, in a clear, uh, hit mind. Do you know what I mean? Or, or, or in a heart. As I say, if your heart's full of hate, you can't give love. If your heart's full of guilt, you can't give love. It's when your heart's full of love that you can give love, because you can't give away something that you haven't got. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I mean, I believe when God comes into your life, he fills your, he fills your heart with love. That was the love that I experienced that morning when I got up out of my bed, you know. Don't get me wrong, I've fallen, I've, <coughs> I've, I've tripped up, you know what I mean, spiritually, I've unpacked the things that I shouldn't have, I've done things, but I know that, that, that the grace and mercy of God is bigger than any one of my sins, do you know what I mean? If he called you, he's faithful to complete what he called you to do, you know, so... And something else quite remarkable happened, you Paul, after going to Conley House and and asking for vindication, you did get it. Yeah. What happened? Well, I went, uh, I went and I spoke till till uh, till a leading member of the Republican movement, and he actually rang me. I went twice to ask, could I speak to this to this leading member, to the Sinn Féin Centre in the Falls Road. I went and left my number, didn't hear anything. But I, I left it for about two or three weeks and I went back and I says, look, I really need to speak to him. Right? So I'm in the car one day and my phone rings and I heard his voice. He says, hello, Paul Reid? I says, yes. He says, blah, blah, blah. I says, yes. He says, I believe you want to speak to me. I says, yes, I do. He says, can I ask you what it's about? I says, I don't know if you're aware what happened to me when I was 17 years of age. And he said he wasn't, but he was. He was, because my mum put him out of her house. My mum put him out of her house in my yard, right? And when he tried to say that there was three sides to the story, right? So he says to me, right, I'll meet you. So a couple of weeks later, I get another phone call from his, his like, secretary, or second in command, whatever you want to call it. You know, and I went and I met him. And uh, I met him in Kennedy Centre. Darren had a coffee. He took all the details down, all what happened. And he says to me, you know, the only thing is, Paul, you know, the IRA don't exist no more, you know. Uh, so we can't really give you an apology from the IRA. And I remember laughing at him. And he says, you're talking to Paul Reid here, you're not talking to the British diplomat, you know, or a member of the Unionist Party. But don't be telling me the IRA don't exist, right? And the people are that done it, they're still there. The people are that sanctioned it, they're still there. Or the people are that knew what happened, they're still there. So he says to me, look, listen, let me get back to you on this. And then, and then he rang me, and we had a second meeting. And the second time, he was much more nicer. Right? And what he says to me was that they, the order they were given from, 
from the leadership was that they had to do everything for to get me this done. And he says to me, they could go through it another way. And he got me in contact with uh, Community Restorative Justice because they're able to go and speak to people that maybe aren't there no more, you know, maybe do things that they couldn't do. I says, right. And I went and spoke with Emmons. He went, done what he had to do. He went and spoke to people as 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 a community store of justice. They can speak to anyone, you know what I mean. So he went. Uh, he was speaking on behalf of of the leadership of the IRA that he met, and he says that they told him that it was wrong, and it should never have happened. Some IRA volunteers were involved in it, but it was wrong, and it should never have happened. And that was good enough for me. Do you know what I mean? That's as close as an apology from the IRA that you'll ever get. Oh, you'll not get any closer than that. Do you know what I mean? And uh, they are, I mean, well, they have come out at times and says that they're sorry for everything that, that ever happened. Do you know what I mean? So, but this for me was more personal. You know, this is for me because the people in the community, you know, the ones that, ah, oh, he got bit, he must have done it for something. That was me telling them, now, now, now you can shut your mouth up. Because there's it from the IRA that it was wrong and it shouldn't have happened, you know. So for me, for me, it was, although my mum didn't like it. <laughs> I remember giving it to my mum, my mum went, what's that? That's not worth the paper that it's written on. But my mum, my was, she, was she was a wee warrior woman. Like she, when I get bit, she, <laughs> she flipped tables and everything up in Conley House. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kicked her, uh, she, she went mental, you know what I mean? Absolutely mental. But uh, now she didn't really see it. She didn't really see it as an apology, but she says to me, if you're happy with it, well, that's a main thing. I said, I don't want them to say sorry. I just want them to tell that it was wrong, it shouldn't have happened. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't want someone to go and sorry for what happened to you. I don't, need, I don't need anyone to say sorry. You know what I mean? When God found you, Paul, did that make you reflect a lot on the past and oh, yeah. your beliefs? Oh, yeah. Well, as I say, you know, I would have been a very, very strong Republican socialist, right? And I've been a Republican all my life. And none of it means anything to me anymore, you know, because in heaven, there's not going to be any chai colours. There'll not be no Union Jacks, you know. There'll not be no God Save the Queen. There'll not be no standing for Iran the Fane, you know. So it means nothing to me anymore, do you know what I mean? Although it, at times there, it does come back at you, you know, uh, when you're reading something or something's coming out about collusion or corruption and it sickens you, but I need to learn to let that go because it's none of my business. Do you know what I mean? To me, the whole trouble's here, you know. It was all the work of evil, you know. It was evil what happened, you know. And good men was involved. Good men lost their lives. Good, but there was also evil people involved. Do you know what I mean? And that's, to me, there's only two types of people on the planet. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You know what I mean? And in that war, the two of them get mixed together. And sadly enough, the children of God, they get hammered the most. You know what I mean? And the children of the devil raised till the top. And that's it. I mean, and that's what I believe. You know. Your dad also found God after you. Yeah, my dad. Uh, my dad was, he was, he, he was some character, I tell you. And, uh, after he seen the change in me, there was a there was a weekend, and it's called Curseal, right? And it's called it's called a three day walk with Christ. And if I can just share a wee quick story with you, how powerful this Curseal is. The IRA leadership sent two men in 
because they were losing that many volunteers to it. Remember going and doing this weekend, coming out and resigning from the IRA, right? And the IRA leadership sent two men in to infiltrate it, to see what was going on. And the two men came out and says, we're resigned, we walked away. That's true. Yep, that's a true story. That's how powerful this weekend. Well, what is the weekend? Describe it. You can't describe it. you got to experience it. It's it's just amazing. Well, I'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you how powerful it is from my own experience. My dad, after I'd done the weekend, I came out, my mum hugged my dad, told him I loved him. He stood like a statue. He said, your ma's up upstairs. You know why the, 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 my dad's old school? So my ma came down and she wanted to do it. If my ma had done it and my dad had done it, they'd have been on completely different wavelengths, right? So... I went down one day and I says to him, ask my dad about doing it. No, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. He wouldn't do it. He wasn't having none of it. And I was sitting praying one day and I just got, go down and hit him with it. And I went down to my dad and he's sitting on his chair and I closed the door and I says, Dad, my man wants to do this weekend. And he says, oh, what are you telling me for? I says, well, she can't do it if you don't do it. I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. I says to him, that woman stood by you through two prison sentences. She stood by you when you were an alcoholic on the drink. It's me. And you couldn't sacrifice one weekend of your life just for her. I'm going to put you down for husband of the year. And I took and walked out. So the next day, my ma rings me. Paul, your dad wants you. And I went down. Didn't know what to expect. I went down. As I went, and I said, what is it, dad? He says, put my name down for that weekend and no more talking about it. I says, right, okay. So come... Come the weekend, and anything happened in the family, you know your families are, you've always got your dramas, and anything happened with that, I'm not doing that weekend, I'm not, he, he wasn't doing it. So it comes till, it, till, till the weekend, and I'm bringing him up, him and the brother, and the two mates doing it. And on the way up in the car, I tried to put on, there was, a, there, was like, there was like music, you know what I mean, it's gospel music, holy music from Curcio, and he wouldn't, he turned that off, turned that off. So on the way up, his plan was, he was going this weekend, he was staying in the bedroom for the weekend and he wasn't participating in nothing, right? And he was coming back home again. I went, right, okay, you do that. He fought the whole way up in the car. So we, we get up out, outside the place, all the boys that have done Curcio, they're all called, uh, when Curcio is this, and they're all hugging each other. And my dad goes, what have you brought me to? I'm not mentioning on the podcast what he says, but he says, the first one tries to put their hands around me, I'm going to stick a head on them. So I had to jump out in front of him and tell all the boys, don't be trying to hug my dad, don't be trying to hug my dad. So left him off on the Friday. Goes back on the Sunday to pick him up and there was a completely different man standing in front. My dad was standing, dancing, singing, singing holy songs to Jesus, right? And I'll never forget the words that he says. We get, we goes outside, I get them all into the car, put their, put their bags in the boot and he goes to me, son, we've been geeked all our lives. And geek is another word for uh, for deceived. He what do you mean that geek? He says, we didn't even have the fire around. We could have prayed the Brits out of Ireland. And that's what he says. And I could not believe the transformation in him. When he came home, I remember my mum ringing me that night. Paul, did they drug your dad up or? I thought my ma thought they drugged him. Then she thought they hypnotised him. Where's my husband? I want my husband back. He's sitting here with a silly grin on his face and he won't even argue with me. <laughs> so... She kept going on at him and because her wasn't till the men do it one weekend and the women do it the next weekend after. And she kept torturing him. You know, what was it like? What was it like? And he says to her, I'll tell you two things. And this is all I'm telling you about it. So what's that? He says, it was the best weekend of my life and I wish I had it done it years ago. And that was my dad's turnaround. 
I remember as a young boy growing up, my dad, when he had always shared his stories with me, you know, about the things that he had done. And I remember him always telling me, son, I'm going to hell for the things that I've done. And I never really believed in heaven and hell or anything like that. And when I had my experience with God, the first person I thought of, I knew that heaven and hell was real. The first person I thought of was my dad. And I prayed and prayed and prayed that my dad, <coughs> my dad would accept Jesus Christ. And that's what he done. So it was, it was amazing. And then my mum done it the next weekend. And when my mum came back, her and my dad's, the, the peace in the home was, was unreal. You know what I mean? Completely different household, completely different family. And that was all through Jesus Christ. Brought that peace into our home. So your dad went from a hardened, violent IRA man, unrepentant, to go into that weekend and and just completely changed? Do you want me to tell you, if you asked my dad before he'd done the weekend, do you regret anything? <coughs> he would have said, the only thing I regret, I didn't kill enough of them. And that was, and that was his words. And I can say this now. And after his weekend, when did he ask him? He regretted everything. In fact, he, he, he spent his days praying for the victims that he killed and praying for God for forgiveness. Because he experienced what I experienced. He knew that Jesus was real. And if Jesus is real, the devil's real. And my dad seen that himself. You said your dad spent uh, two prison sentences. What was that for? My dad was caught in 1983. He was involved uh, in an operation. They were, they were going to kill two judges. Uh, there was boys caught in mugful. At that time, the the uh, that that specific unit, they were involved in probably most of the operations that was taking place in Belfast. Do you know what I mean? They were they were like a, they were like an elite unit within the IRA. And I heard my dad play a very very leading role in it. You know, uh, I spoke to Republicans. After, I remember speaking to one one uh, leading Republican who I believe he would have been Belfast Brigade OC, so he would have known everything was happening. I remember it was only this was only about four about four years ago, and I asked him. I says, uh, "Was my dad as mad as I said he was, or was he or was he just dedicated?" And this is what he says. He says, "Your dad was the most staunch one of the most staunch IRA volunteers I ever came across in my life." He says, uh, "Every major operation." Going down in Belfast at the time, he says, your dad would have played a leading role in it, right? He says, very few IRA men I would have trusted were my life. He says, he says, but your dad was one of them. He says, unbreakable. He says, I hope that answers your question. So that's the type of man that went from that till, till a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ. Your dad, Patsy, his brother was also a renowned Republican yeah. called Billy Reid. Yeah. Um, he was the first provisional... IRA member to shoot a soldier in the Troubles. That soldier was Gunner Robert, Robert Curtis, who was 20. Yeah. Just three months later, Billy was shot in a failed ambush on Scottish soldiers. Uh, there is the Wolf Tone song, The Ballad of Billy Reid, um, a renowned song uh, celebrated by Republicans and sang by Republicans. When you talk about forgiveness, Paul and you know your dad, he 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 was able to find that forgiveness and he he turned to God. 
do you think about your uncle Billy and yeah of course you know uh, I mean I think about that quite a lot and you know even even uh, Billy you know I mean I didn't know him I, I was born in 78 Billy was Billy was killed in 1971 Billy was an ex uh, Billy was an ex m m uh, member of the Territorial Army uh, wow yeah Billy was in the Territorial Army he was a I'm led to believe he was a great boxer, uh, and he boxed for the TA. He was yeah, he, he he was from Carmine Drive in uh, Rathcool, so Billy Billy uh Billy the same street as Bobby Sands. I don't know if I don't know if they knew each other. Maybe Bobby was too young, but Billy's now this is from my dad telling me uh, how Billy got involved. Uh, Billy, there was rats in between the New Lodge and Tigers Bay, and Billy stabbed the. Police stabbed the Protestant. He he had like a it was rats breaks out. He had like a makeshift uh, pole, and he had and he put a pair of scissors on top of it, and he stabbed the Protestant. So the IRA came around to shoot him because it was because it was I think sectarian. Now I'm 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 going for what my dad told me, and the guy says, "Tell him, Billy, you know you're getting shot." He went, "What for?" He went, oh, He says, "There's only one way out here for you, kid." And he went, "What's that?" He says, "Join up." And that's how Billy joined up. Billy joined the rat. I remember my mum telling me after Billy, you see, Billy was a <laughs> Billy was something else too, like, you know what I mean? He was he was brave, you know, brave and at his fiftieth at his at his fiftieth anniversary, I was talking to a few of his a few of his comrades who would have been quite younger. Billy was thirty two, so he'd have been quite young they'd have been quite younger than Billy. And uh, they were telling me about some of his exploits and some of his thing. I mean, it's just <laughs> legendary, you know. So, I remember my mum telling me that my dad had never any inkling of getting involved in the IRA. Never, never, never. He, I mean, he, he was a worker. My man said all he'd done was work. He had a job down in Cook's. I think it was like a big store scrapyard type of place. And, uh, I mean, my dad had two bought houses on the new lodge road at that time. You know, well, sorry, one. And, uh, I mean, at that time, to have a bought house and a good job, you know what I mean, for a Catholic, you know, and an Islandist, it was, you know, it was good. So... He was getting on with his life. Billy was shot dead. I, my dad had to go and identify him. Uh, remember my dad always tell me about that moment when he, you know, when he went to identify him. He says that they had him lying on an old slab with a tea towel over his face, you know. As I pulled it over and you know, how my dad identified him. Well, well, Billy, Billy was burnt as a kid. He had scars down his front of his chest. And the tip of his finger he had lost. Uh, he was a trainee joiner and he lost it in the machine. And that's how my dad identified him. Because he he was that badly beaten, and I mean, and this is something that this is something that I've always wanted to get out about Billy. You know when, you know when when Curtis when, when Curtis was shot dead, people of the New Lodge Road helped Curtis until the back of the jeep. The next day on the New Lodge Road, I remember my dad telling me this: the young man had written uh, "Rotten Hell Curtis." Maybe it was a couple of days out there, I don't know when, but they had written "Rotten Hell Curtis," and Billy went down with a ton of black paint. And painted it out. And the young boys come over and said, Don't believe what are you doing that for? And he said, Listen, that's somebody's son. He was a soldier. You have to have respect. You don't mark a dead. And he walked away. But yet, three months later, look at the death they give Billy. Do you know what I mean? Beat him, beat him nearly to death. You know? Didn't didn't give Billy the same respect, you know, that Billy gave them his, you know. I didn't realise Billy was beaten to death. I thought he had been shot after he a field was, ambush and so He was shot and they brought him in the alleyway. And uh, they, they beat him for about a half an hour, 20 minutes to half an hour. They gave him a terrible, terrible beating, and then they finished him off. You know what I mean? 
a horrible beating they gave him. But, uh, so, and then my ma told me that after that, after Billy was killed, my dad was getting tortured. I remember one time he was, they got him and he had 89 baton wounds on his body, right? 89 baton wounds. The loyalists tried to come in and kill him in, 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 in his job uh, twice. And his boss says to him, Patsy, I'm not having your death in my conscience. Give him a few quid. And, and then my, my mum said, I think it was O'Kane's, I think you called him. I'm not sure now I'm getting the name right. They owned a bar in the New Lodge. And the guy came out with a thousand pound. And gave it, that was a lot of money in. Says to my dad, Patsy, why don't you take you, Marie? And it was only the oldest sister was born there, Martin. Why don't you take him and go to Australia? Get out of here. Because you're going to end up dead. And he was arrested. One time they actually put him on the jeep and used him as a human barkey driving up a New Lodge Road. Right, they beat him. They brought him to Hollywood. Five days, beat. They just beat him, beat him, beat constantly beat him. And I never forget. Or, or, sorry, my mum told me that that he came home one night and says to my mum, "That's it. I'm going to join the IRA and I'm going to kill as many as MPs as I can." And and that's why my dad got involved in the IRA. And so when you when you look at it, it's a it's a sad story. You know what I mean? Billy was a young man, left behind, away from four children. Do you know what I mean? Could have had his whole life ahead of him. And then my dad, Hans, because Billy, I don't know if my dad would have gotten involved, but my ma was adamant that, that he had no, that he just didn't have any inclination to get involved. And then that led to my dad's involvement, which then led to, you know what I mean? Was, as I say, he was talking, it's that ripple effect. You know, one person's action can just ripple out, you know, till the whole, till the whole family and till the whole community as well, you know? So the only advice that I can give you, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not anything, I've been to counselling, I've been to different things. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and watch him change your life. That's the only advice I can give anyone. Jesus is as real as me and you, Patricia, to me. You know what I mean? He's, he'll be your friend, he'll be your comforter, he'll be your confidant, he'll be your everything, you know? And like, as the saying goes, that for those who believe in God, no explanation is necessary. For those who don't believe in God, no explanation is possible. It's faith. It's just faith and without it I wouldn't be here and I, I thank him every day you know I've, I've been mocked for it I've been called crazy you know I've I've said things and, and, and offended people I've had family members falling out with me you know because it it's not trendy these days to, 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 to you know how to follow Jesus do you know what I mean it's not trendy it's not it's not a cool thing do you know what I mean and uh, but as I say and you know the Lord said it himself Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why you like it or not, it's common. You know what I mean. You can you can just see the world we're in. You can see the the evil going on, the hatred. You know, and the only solution is Jesus Christ.